We'll do the last two verses in two weeks. So it's about at this point in the semester when it gets cold and cloudy. And you realize that, yes, indeed, Thanksgiving break is coming, but there's a lot you need to do tomorrow and maybe Tuesday. I've heard several people have tests tomorrow and Tuesday, or things due tomorrow or Tuesday. And it's about this point in the semester when many of us are tired and anxious and a bit stressed, where we start to ask, is this worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, you're paying all this money, is it worth it? To be sleep deprived and stressed all the time, is it worth it? Is it worth it to wake up every day and think, if I just work a little bit harder, maybe I can get that many more points and make that particular grade? Is it worth it to be far away from family and friends? One student I talked to this week said, you know, I can't wait to go home. I really miss, and I thought he was going to say, my mom. And he said, my dog. <laughs> I thought, yeah. Yes, I understand that. Like, is it worth it? And that's a totally understandable feeling. Because when you're involved in the pain and sacrifice now, and you're trying to do all the stuff now and survive the now, it can be really hard to imagine that this is all going to pay off someday. That someday, down the line, this pain will be worth it. Whenever we're involved in something that absorbs us so completely and is somewhat overwhelming and anxiety-producing and kind of pushes us to the limit, we think, really? Is the thing that's supposed to happen going to be worth the stuff that I'm dealing with now? The book of Revelation was written to people who were asking that question. Is this worth it? This following after Jesus business, is it worth it? This being part of this little church, is it worth it? And as we've learned over the course of this semester, these were people who were living at the end of the first century in about the 90s. And Domitian was the emperor then, and he was cruel, and he was heartless, and he acclaimed himself to be a god so that anybody who said anybody else was a god was in deep trouble, was a threat to the empire. And so in the book of Revelation, there are references made to people who are martyred, people who are beheaded, and their own pastor, of course, is in exile on the island. And so the people in these seven little churches are asking, is it worth it? But the external threats aren't the only reason they're asking the question. They're also having to ask a big internal question together. When is Jesus coming back? I mean, it's been a while. So he ascended in about 33 or 34. And when he went up, there was an angel who was on the ground with the disciples. And the disciples are all, that's bright. The disciples are all looking up into the sky. I can no longer see you. I'm sure that's what they said. The disciples are all looking up in the sky and the angel says to them, why are you looking up in the sky? You'll hurt your eyes, is what the angel said. 
The angel said, why are you looking up into the sky? In the same way he went up into heaven, someday he's going to back down out of heaven. So the disciples said, okay, well, let's, let's get busy. Let's do all the things that he wanted us to do. Baptize, go into the nations, preach the gospel, teach people to be obedient to his commandments. And so they do that, and then a year passes, and then two years pass, and then five, ten, fifteen And they're starting to realize that there are people who are coming to join the movement of Jesus who've never met someone who had firsthand experience of Jesus. They've never met somebody who was healed by Jesus. They've never met somebody who actually was a witness and heard Jesus teach. They've maybe never met one of the 12 disciples. And so 15 years pass, 20 years pass, and the disciples start to say, you know what, we got to write this down. we got to write this down because we can't be everywhere telling our story. We need to get this down on paper. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John collect the testimonies about Jesus, and they write their gospels, and gospel means good news. And so these good news papers started to be distributed among the churches, and more and more people started to read about Jesus and become really interested in Jesus, and more and more people started to wonder, when is he coming back? Because it's getting kind of hard down here, and we really want him to come back. I mean, the more I read about him, the more I want him to come back. And so these dear people in this early church were wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it to believe that this guy actually rose up into heaven and he's actually coming back? I mean, imagine how the Christian story sounded to a Roman. Okay, let me get this straight. You all believe that some Palestinian criminal that we crucified way back in the 30s, that he rose from the dead, okay, and then he like hung out with his disciples for 40 days and taught them more about himself, and then he rose up into heaven, and you think someday he's going to come back. And between when he went up into heaven and when he's going to come back to heaven, You think there are certain ways you need to live to honor him. And so you do these things like you give away your money to poor people and people who are in prison. And you you actually believe in your little gatherings that slaves and women are equal to men. And you have these really weird rules about sex and food and time management. And you think it's perfectly okay to get off work on a Sunday to go and sing songs or eat bread or something? I really don't get it. Am I understanding you right? Is that exactly what you believe? Christians in the first century were seen as foolish at best and a threat to the empire at worst. And they were discouraged, and they were weary. And we've read the end of the book. But do you remember how it starts? Do you remember the beginning? Way back in September, before you had friends? Do you remember that? (laughs) Turn to page 994. Page 994. 
Let's read the first eight verses. Let's remember how this starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, Jesus is looking at his church And he is hearing their cry. He is hearing their frustration. He is hearing them say, is this worth it? Is this suffering worth it? Is watching our friends being dragged off to be killed worth it? Is this worth it? And Jesus comes and he gives to their pastor. He gives to John this vision, this amazing vision about the throne room of heaven and about worship and about seven seals and trumpets and bowls and plagues and a beast and a woman who punches the devil right in the face. Paraphrase. <laughs> and about this great battle of Armageddon, which is basically over before it even starts. In response to their pain, Jesus gives them a vision. And this may seem a little odd, but it reminds me of my Uncle Don. My great Uncle Don didn't watch very many sporting events. If he did, it was because he was very invested in the outcome. For example, not kidding, the Hope Calvin men's basketball game. And so when this would come on, he would tape the game, wait, check the radio or check with a friend to find out who won, and then he would watch the game. This is because he would get so anxious watching the game, not knowing who was going to win. It would be so stressful for him to watch every shot, every rebound, every over... He would just be so stressed that he would be like, this isn't worth it for me. I need to know how this all turns out, and then I can watch the game. Jesus is saying, listen, folks, this is how the game ends. This is how the game ends. I know you're stressed. I know you're anxious. I know it is hard to be a Christian under empire, but let me tell you something. We win. This is how the game ends. 
And so imagine if you're in one of these seven little churches and you haven't heard anything since the 50s. And now Pastor John's letter gets sent to you and you begin to read it. And you read those first chapters where he names each of the churches with detail and affection. And then he goes on to tell this amazing story. And he says, to the one who conquers, to the ones who are faithful, to those who have patient endurance, to those who are obedient, to those who are holy, to those who repent, you're with me on the winning team. And let me tell you something. This word was so precious to those seven churches. It was so welcomed to them to know that Jesus saw them and he knew them and he loved them and he was fighting for them that they said, we can't just keep this for ourselves. I know some of us don't look so great in the first part of this letter, but we got to get over our ego and we got to send this out because other people need to know. They need to know that it's worth it. They need to know that it's worth it. And so the church has taken this book and they've said, you got to read this. You got to read this. You got to read this. This is the best thing you're ever going to read. And the church has passed it on from generation to generation to generation right here to Calvin College in 2016. Now, when you applied to Calvin College, there was a particular statistic that you, but probably even more so your parents, were really interested in. And that is, how many people graduate from Calvin College and actually get a job? How many of them actually go to graduate school? You wanted to know the answer to the question, is this worth it? Is this worth it for my kid? And if you go online, you can get a full report of the outcomes of the class of 2015. And you will find that they did this big survey, because that's what we do. And there were 652 students who replied. And of those, 99.7% are either in a job that aligns with what they studied here at Calvin College, or they are in grad school. 99.7%. So of the 652 students who filled out that report, there are nine who are either unemployed or underemployed. Nine. Now, if you can trust the Career Center with their data and their really iffy 99.7% chance that you're going to be okay, (laughs) can you not trust Jesus who says, I guarantee that you are going to be okay. You are investing thousands of dollars and thousands of hours and sleepless night. You are eating ramen noodles, people. (laughs) Because you trust earth-based outcomes of the class of 2015 and 2014 and 2013, because we do this all the time. If you can trust that... Shaky, 99.7. 100%. Guarantee. It's worth it. The sacrifices that you are making now, as far as being a college student, 
worth it. The sacrifices that you are making now as a follower of Jesus Christ, priceless, and honestly, much more costly. The sacrifices that you are making now say to this world, there are things that I value that you do not value. I value the poor. I value people who don't look like me. I value people who don't believe the way I believe. I value my body. And I'm going to use it in a way that brings glory to God. I value my time. And I'm going to set up my life in a way that brings glory to God. I value my money. And I'm going to give as much of it away as I can I am going to stand in the face of empire, and I'm going to have people look at my life and say, really? You believe in some Palestinian criminal who was crucified way back in the first century, and you think he rose from the dead, and then he went up to heaven, and you think he's coming back, and it's been 2,000 years? In the best case scenario, we look foolish, and we should, because this is a crazy story. And if it wasn't true, we would be foolish. But we know that it is. We know that it is because we've seen lives changed. We know that it is because we can do the research and we can prove things. We know that the story is true because God keeps using it to change the lives of people and move them from death to life, and he's done it with you, and that's why you're here. So you will look foolish. Welcome. We've had t-shirts made. We will look foolish together. The t-shirts say Calvin College on them. <laughs> we will look foolish together for the sake of the gospel because we believe that this is worth it. And this is why at the very end of the book, he says, blessed are those who wash their robes, and it gets back to this idea of being washed in the blood of the Lamb, of claiming that you cannot do this on your own, that you need Jesus to purify you. That's why at the end of the book, he says, the Spirit and the bride say, come, because it's not just enough to go, I know I'm going to win at the end, I hope you turn out okay. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, are supposed to be invitational. We're supposed to be out there saying, let everyone who hears come. Come. You want to be on the winning team? You want to drink this water of life? Everybody come, 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 and know my Jesus. Everybody come and be foolishly in love with Jesus with me. Everybody come. And we do that because of the name that he claims at the beginning of the book and at the end. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And you may remember early on we said the Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And when Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, he is saying, I know how this began and I know how it ends. And I hold the story of the cosmos in my hands. And because he holds the story of the cosmos in his hands, he holds your story in his hands. He holds your story in his hands.
He knows how it began. He knows the pain. He knows the times when you've said, I don't know if this is worth it. He holds your story in his hands. And he knows how it ends. And he will never let you go. That is our Jesus. He holds you in the palm of his hand And just as he did for this church, he has loved us and he has freed us from our sins by his body on the cross. And he has made us a kingdom forever. And so on those moments, and we'll have them, when we wonder if it's worth it, we reread Revelation. We read the story. We look once again at the tape of the game of which we already know the score. Jesus wins, and so do we.